Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Big Nose Podcast. This week on the show we have a show full of history, full of a lot of sport and full of a new segment I will be introducing as we close out the final year of 2020. In the first topic of conversation on the podcast this week we will be looking at the Bloody Sunday anniversary or commemorations that were held over this week in relation to the marking of 100 years since the shooting dead of 14 civilians in Croke Park. We will also now be looking at the seven game run of Ireland's soccer team and how we are maybe taking too much of a negative view on the first few games of the new manager Stephen Kenny. Towards the end of this podcast I will be introducing all of you to the new uh, segment in terms of reviewing the last 20 years or the first 20 years of this century and trying to come together and get an idea of the most significant moments that have played out in the last 20 years. But first, turning to the events of 100 years ago and the Bloody Sunday commemorations held in this past week. For a lot of you out there, Bloody Sunday um, brings to mind certain poignant and significant factors in Irish history. We've had a couple of Bloody Sundays in Ireland, more recently that in 1970s. And for a lot of people, and especially of my generation, I think when people say Bloody Sunday, they think of the waving of the white flag and the gunshots and the grainy images on the RT TV programmes of the bodies being carried out of the bog side. But the first Bloody Sunday in Irish history took place back over just over a hundred years ago um, this weekend um, it took place during a Dublin versus Tipperary challenge game in Croke Park and I suppose in terms of looking back and getting a, an idea of what happened on that fateful weekend in Dublin we must look at all of the players and uh, people involved in the events around the Bloody Sunday what was going on this weekend in Croke Park was a commemoration of those who had lost their lives in the attacks on that day. In attendance at the ceremony held in a very dark, very haunting Croke Park was President of Ireland Michael D. Higgins. He lay a wreath in the park, in Croke Park, uh, commemorating the 14 who died in the attack. In attendance also was the Irish actor Brendan Gleeson. He was on, on Hill 16 and he was reading out a number of stories, eyewitness accounts from those who had written down what they saw on that day. In another tribute pay, paid to those who lost their lives on this fateful day, he read out each and every name of all those who were killed. And on Hill 16, famous in Dublin history for the home supporters or the, or the stalwart supporters of the Dublin GAA team 14 fires were lit or candles or 
fires were lit to remember and mark those who passed away. Now the commemoration of these events have not always gone down well in Irish history. A lot of the people who died on this day were buried in unmarked graves and only up to in recent times has there been a movement by the GAA and the Irish government to put a name and put a place of remembrance in place for these people. Taking it in isolation is probably not the best thing to do because this day in Irish history started off in a different way, if truth be told. Why did this happen? Why was there an attack on people in attendance at an Irish GA game in Croke Park on that day? This is a question I ask. Now, I know from your history books that you learn through the curriculum in Irish schools, you'll learn a little bit about Irish independence and the War of Independence. But you probably don't touch in detail on what happened around the time of the Bloody Sunday attacks. And if you do, you'll probably get a skewed sense of history. And the danger of history, it's always written by the victors. So in uh, preparation for this podcast and trying to get a little bit more in information in terms of what actually happened on this day, I kind of went and had a look at different sides of the story and try to understand who was playing pivotal roles and what happened on this day to cause such a horrific event to happen because I my understanding of anything in this world things don't happen in isolation men don't just walk into a stadium filled with people in attendance at a GEA game and start shooting randomly at people something has to happen for these um, chain of events to occur and when you start looking at it in more detail and you try to understand what happened in, in advance of this attack, you get a better understanding of where Ireland was at at this time and, and how much history is written very often from one point of view. So going back to this fateful day, the morning of this fateful day, back in 1920, it is fair to say that there was another massacre held on the streets of Dublin. In the hotels, in the bed and breakfasts, in the hostels of Dublin that day. In particular, directed by Michael Collins. Michael Collins, as many of you may know, was a leader within Ireland at that time. And he was renowned for being very cutthroat he was a man who was fighting for Irish independence the IRA that morning went out and killed 14 suspected British Asian agents of the 14 or 15 that were killed eight of them turned out to be British Asians the rest of them could not be found evidence to suggest that they were working on behalf of the British Michael Collins was the leader of a lot of people around Dublin at that stage and around Ireland, it should be told. He created the squad. This was a basically a military um, group of people who went out and did the dirty work in terms of attacks and murders and assassinations, let's be honest, of British or British loyalists. On this morning, 
the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, went out and had set out to kill more than 14. It is said, and it is written down and it is documented, that Michael Collins had earmarked 50 people to be attacked on this day. But due to the resources he had at hand, upwards of 100 men, it was felt that he only was able to attack possibly 50. Um, sorry, only possibly 30. So on this day morning, the morning where it was felt that because there was a match going on in Dublin, that there was a better, it was a festive atmosphere around Dublin and there was less likely to be any skullduggery any negative vibes because it wouldn't benefit the Irish in attendance at the game because it would have been negative. But Michael Collins was cute enough. He felt that people could travel up from the country because it was Tipperary playing against Dublin and under the guise of, you know, a supporter of the Tipperary club. And the British wouldn't suspect as much as they would anybody else travelling on any other day. So ultimately what happened on this day back in 1920, as far as I can read, is that the IRA went and attacked people in their beds, people sharing the rooms with their children and wives, under the guise of a guerrilla warfare, under the guise of a war of independence, fighting for independence from the British Empire. They went in and they went and slaughtered 14 men successfully one story i read is where one man was killed beside his then pregnant wife who a week later gave still was gave birth to a stillborn baby and months later died herself these murders were used under the cover of the gaa and this is where the gaa plays into it the british were very skeptical of the gaa they felt that the gaa and the ira were one of the same. The GAA at the time was a very broad church. It would accept anybody into it. It was very Irish orientated. And with the match going on in Dublin, the people who had had committed these murders on the mor that morning of the British or suspected British agents were able to continue up to Croke Park on the north side of the city, mingle in with the people who were going there to view the game and basically slip and disappear into the abyss. When the, the British got wind of these assassinations that morning, the British forces arrived at Croke Park and began armed blockades of all the exits. It was their intention, of course, to go in and search for the people who they suspected had created these offences. But when the police began this searches, panic within the crowd pursued as naturally as it would. If you were an innocent civilian going to a game and you saw armed people, armed police coming into your stadium, I know I'd be panicked. I'd be knowing what's going on. But unfortunately, discipline within the British forces wasn't what it was or what it should have been on the day. People were baying for blood. They wanted revenge. And this is true. This is very true. I totally believe that this is a revenge tactic. You had the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, mixed in with the Black and Tans and the Auxiliary Forces. All there at Croke Park after hearing and seeing their own men 
slaughtered by the Irish and there they were hiding amongst other Irish at this Dublin Tipperary game. So the British were at the gates of the Croke, at Croke Park. They had begun entering and they were not in their fair mind. The red mist had ascended, you might say. Subsequently, shots were fired. 14 innocent people were killed at Croke Park that day. And I suppose, in its simplest form, that is what happened. Amongst the dead, there was three children. There was a bride-to-be also. There was players as well. And no one can say what the British did that day was fair. Retaliation in this form is never fair, in my opinion. But it forever entwined the GAA with the War of Independence. It forever entwined the GAA with the IRA. And in a modern day where the GAA are seen as stalwarts of the community, it's my opinion that this has not gone away. The GAA is still very nationalist. It is still about a, a, a one Ireland approach. And there's nothing wrong with this. But in an Ireland back then that we saw huge divisions, not just amongst society, but amongst family, where people were either British or where they were Irish or they identified themselves as both. It was very difficult to come away from that day. So looking to today and this week where the Irish president marked this terrible occasion in Irish history. It is just important to be aware of the dangers of history, as I would say. History isn't always black and white. It's very much nuanced. You can find history when you look for it. For and you can look at and you can find opinions of history that match your own. But I always say it's important to look at what actually happened. Try and go into it as objective as you can. It's important to know what actually happened rather than opinions that were given. Be a bit more insightful. On this day, we should not just remember the deaths of the 14 who died in Croke Park so, so needlessly. But we should also hold responsible those who incited hatred towards fellow human beings on that day and sparked off such terrible, terrible ramifications for Ireland as a nation further on down through its history. Nothing happens in a vacuum and retaliation for deaths of 14 people that morning should not equate to 14 more people dying that afternoon at a GAA game. An eye for an eye and the world goes blind. And that's my thoughts on the commemorations. And we all know what's next. That was the commemoration of Bloody Sunday. That was 
U2 and U2's Bono, as only he can sing. Going from one sporting venue to another sport, I might say. And this week, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, as they're called, because we can't call them Ireland because we have another footballing team on this island called Northern Ireland. But the Republic of Ireland recorded a one-point draw against Bulgaria. And the topic of conversation in regards to this segment of the podcast is to seven games without a goal. Seven games without gold, or which equates to approximately 11 hours with no goal. Poor old Stephen Kenny. Stephen Kenny, as many of you know, has replaced Mick McCarthy as the Republic of Ireland international manager. Since coming to office, as the phrase is going around so much at the moment, Stephen Kenny has had four draws and four losses. But Stephen Kenny came into a job in very unusual times. The impact of COVID-19 on his taking over has been very much problematic in terms of building a team, putting a team together, implementing an approach in which he wants to build a team and having the players at his disposal in the first place. In the in the most recent games, a squad of 24 was dwindled down so significantly I think it was up to 13 players were missing from that squad 13 players who you might say are likely to make the first team or the first 15 Stephen Kenny now is becoming under pressure and you know 8 games for any manager is very little but when you're not getting the results as he isn't it's not good and when you're not getting the goals which we're not scoring you kind of question first of all how he got the job what was his background and what is his credentials a lot of the pressure that's coming on at the moment suggests that maybe Stephen Kenny on the international stage is out of his depth how can a manager of the League of Ireland team equate to an international manager if we look up the international managers that we've had previously. We've had Trapattoni, we had Mick McCarthy, we had Martin O'Neill. So you could say there isn't a huge bar in terms of international managers, maybe Trapattoni. But putting a man in there from League of Ireland, taking on board that he's managed underage teams of the Republic of Ireland quite a high degree and quite to quite a lot of success you may say that might not necessarily translate into a senior team but surely he's been managing the players at an underage that developed into the senior team so is he out of his depth that's one question that we need to ponder but again like what happened back a hundred years ago in Croke Park nothing happens within a vacuum and we are now looking into a qualifying campaign for a World Cup. When we were qualifying for the Euros, there was 24 places available during that qualifying campaign. Looking into Qatar 2020, and that within itself has its own questions to ask how Qatar can get it, but we shan't go into that on this podcast. 
but it's much harder to qualify for the World Cup than it is for the Euros. In total, Europe has 13 places to give over to its countries, against 24 for the European qualifications. So basically, Ireland have to win the group, even though that they're coming out of pot three, which suggests that there is at least two teams better than in the group. We have to qualify within, We have to qualify by winning the group or winning a playoff place, three of the playoff places that are left over. And that's quite a convoluted, and we have very little success through that. Going back to Stephen Kenny, he is trying to implement the same type of football that was played under his Dundalk team. It was quite good football. It was skillful, it was passing, it was movement. It wasn't the long ball that we all got used to on the previous regimes on the Irish stage. But the one big thing I feel that is hampering Stephen Kenny's success or potential success outside of the current COVID-19 um, pandemic that is impacting quite severely his preparation, his selection, his building of a team, is the fact that the last time Ireland qualified for a World Cup was in 2002. That is 18 years ago. And if we were to qualify for Qatar 2020, that would be a space of 20 years. If you look at the team that qualified and was used during the qualifying campaign or was on that flight over to uh, Korea and Japan back in 2002, some of the names that stick out are these. You have the likes of Shea Given, who was at Newcastle and went on to Manchester City. You had the likes of Ian Hart in defence, who was with Leeds United. And if you remember correctly, Leeds United at that stage were in Champions League football. Your court had Manchester United's Roy Keane. You had Jason McIntyre. You had Damien Duff at Blackburn, who went on later to go with Chelsea. You had Robbie Keane. You had Richard Dunn. You had Niall Quinn. And you had Kevin Kilban. Look at those names or listen to those names. And you compare that team or those players in that team to the team that we have now. And not giving any disservice to that team now. But it's not the same level or calibre of player that we have now. One of the biggest problems we have at the moment is the fact that we've gone seven games without scoring a goal. And I accept we've created chances. But it's one thing creating a chance and it's another thing converting it. You could put Robbie Keane on a pitch and he might not see the ball or touch the ball. But you're guaranteed that he'll get a goal scoring chance. And, and more times than not he will score. You had creative players in the likes of Damien Duff. Jason McAteer. You know they were able to come into a team and create chances for the front men. The likes of Niall Quinn. You had people chiming in from the back. The likes of Ian Hart with his, his penalty kicks or his free kicks. Jason McIntyre as well. Kevin Kilban. You had Richard Dunn coming up at corners. You had a stalwart in goal. In all fairness to Darren Randolph. He has been a godsend in terms of goalkeeping. And Ireland have always had good goalkeepers. We've always had to have good goalkeepers. The likes of Packy Bonner, Shea Given, Darren Randolph, Dean Kiley. We've had lots of great goalkeepers, but we've needed them. So you can't expect Ireland and our team of Ireland's calibre now with the players that they have 
with very few of them playing Premiership football at the high level that we once were, to be able to compete with other countries, play a style of football that other countries play, when the caliber or the the level of skill isn't there. It's an unfair expectation upon the manager to be able to do something with a team that he doesn't see all that often. That bring them together within camp and be able to convert them into a cohesive unit is unfair. It's unrealistic to be able to say that we're going to score this many goals per campaign. We don't have the players in the squad at the moment to score those goals. And if you were to take a whole look at the Irish setup, the foundations of the Irish soccer at the moment is on unsteady ground. We have seen the debacle of the FAI over the last two years, their structures, their financial woes, and that always breeds into what ultimately happens within an international setup. It shouldn't, but it does. And this is reflective in us now going into a new campaign in pot tree with a likely draw against two of the top teams in Europe and fighting for a place for automatic qualification that is unlikely to happen. So Ireland now as a soccer nation is in the doldrums and we don't I don't think a change in manager will change this. It's a change in the ability to have top class players like we once had playing for Ireland and at the moment it's just not there. Finally for the podcast this week I think it, coming towards the end of 2020 and it being the end of the second decade in this century I thought it would be a great idea to look back on the first 20 years of this century and try and identify key world events or domestic events that have shaped the world that we remember most. Now when I was 10 years of age we came into this uh, century and I suppose looking back on the last 20 years I have some ideas in terms of what have been significant keynote events that have happened but I'm going to send this out into the ether I'm going to feed it across my social media platforms and I hope that the listeners will engage with me here and give me some feedback in terms of what events they were and what I'll do towards the next few podcasts is discuss the events and I might even get some people in who have given their opinion on this podcast with me and we can discuss the events that they feel are most memorable from the last 20 years but just to get us started off and get you a get give you a feel of what I'm talking about back going back all the way back to 2000 I suppose and the new millennium and once we had survived the millennium bug if you remember that I think the first thing I remember uh, in terms of a significant event was the Concorde plane crash near Paris that it resulted in 113 deaths and I think we all remember that image of the car going along the motorway and panning out the left hand side window and seeing the flames coming out of the rear of the Concorde and that ultimately sealed the fate of supersonic flight um, and still hasn't returned unfortunately and I think 
it was only within a few years that the last Concorde coming to land in Heathrow Airport from a New York to London flight. Uh, going on a bit, obviously one um, feature that will feature quite strongly, you would have to imagine in people's memories of the first 20 years of this century, is the terror attacks in America in 2001, also kind of abbreviated now into 9-11. 9-11 obviously encapsulated the attacks on the Twin Towers, it also encapsulated the attack on the Pentagon and the, the crashing of the plane over Pittsburgh um, in which the crew and the um, people on board overpowered the terrorists and were able to divert the plane but ultimately it crashed into the ground. Within weeks obviously we got to know who Osama bin Laden was and as the years went by the search for him and the death of him would come along. Um, I don't know if any of you remember watching Sky News, I remember it very significantly in 2002 shortly after going into the um, the Euro and the bringing along of the Euro, which in itself was a significant moment, you might say. But the the hostage situation in Moscow when the Chechen rebels took over the, uh, the, the theater that time, and I think it was a three or four days, and it was rolling news, and we were kind of all getting used to 24-hour news at that stage. But I remember the trying to go in and save them, and they released gas, and I think it was 116, 120 of them died. In, in, in the efforts to save them, the rest of them did, of course, survive. And obviously in 2002, and funnily enough, looking back on what we spoke earlier in terms of the Irish soccer team, uh, Saipan and the Roy Keane gate and all those interviews and Eamon Dunphy and Mick McCarthy and all those players. And this is the type of thing that I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. What is significant within the 20, first 20 years? And I'd love to get people's standout moments if you can think of three maybe standout moments from the first 20 years maybe the introduction of facebook maybe the generation of the apple the apple phone the inauguration of barack obama as the first african-american president maybe the ash cloud in iceland or the tsunamis on stevens's day anything like that is what i'm looking for and um, i hope you've enjoyed this podcast it was a little bit of a history lesson for myself in terms of Bloody Sunday. It was a little bit of a realisation in terms of the expectations of the Irish soccer team going into the future and under Stephen Kenny's management. And it's also nostalgic in terms of looking back over the last 20 years of this century and what really played a significant role in our lives to date. Thanks for listening. Check out the rest other podcasts that are available here on the Big Nose Podcast. And in a final note, this week I will be conducting a very interesting one-on-one -on -one interview with a very special guest which will be released later next week. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Take care.